welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from La Show, Radio Nation, Tom Hartman, Rachel Maddow, and the last clip today is a special guest appearance by Godless Kinzer himself. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. This will burst your bubble. Following the battle of wills between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Following the latest in a series of assassinations, the government in mid-April banned unregistered motorcycles throughout the district of Andar, depriving the insurgents of their preferred mode of attack. Not to be outdone, the Taliban promptly issued a decree of its own no vehicular movement in the district at all. Those defying the order would be prime targets for Taliban revenge. The result? The roads are almost empty of traffic. Analysts now fear that the Taliban resurgency in that area is part of a wider resurrection of the Islamist movement that will lead to a dramatic escalation in violence in other areas of southern Afghanistan, including Helmand province, where British troops have been deployed. A fierce Taliban-led insurgency in recent months has placed a town which is just 100 miles south of Kabul among the most volatile provinces in southern Afghanistan. And the Taliban now say they will step up their campaign this year, calling 2006 the year of defeat for the enemy. Mission accomplished. A doctor who ridiculed the idea of a 34-year-old appointing himself administrator of a 700-bed hospital in Baghdad was slapped across the face by his new boss who ordered armed security guards to escort the medic from the building. This is from the Times of London. The expulsion was a brutal warning to other staff who might question the right of the Al-Mahdi Army, a Shia militia, to install one of their own to run the hospital. The same is happening in schools and colleges, the civil servants and government ministries, and leading businesses as Baghdad's middle classes are fired to make way for militia apparatchiks. For many professionals, this assault on their livelihoods and expertise is the final straw, and they're leaving Baghdad in droves. That's the only vehicle they have available to them, is it? Late model drove. Since the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, they've put up with random violence, curfews, kidnappings, rising prices, gas lines, and the misery of surviving on two hours electricity a day. But they see little point in staying in Iraq if they cannot continue with their work. Sadiq Al-Mehdi, a dentist queuing up with his wife and two daughters at the airport this week, had his clinic hijacked by militiamen. Quote, I kept telling myself things would get better, but when, he said. This is my home. I want it to work. But you can't have the nonsense of uneducated, inexperienced people being put in control just because some cleric with a militia says so. The new Iraq, ladies and gentlemen. Deadline London, British Attorney General Peter Goldsmith this week said the U.S. detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, was unacceptable and should close. That's the British Attorney General. It was the highest level British condemnation yet of what is widely viewed in Europe as a human rights travesty. A couple more items outside the bubble. 
A year after Bush administration claims about Iraq, bioweapons trailers were discredited by American experts. U.S. officials were still suppressing the findings, says a senior member of the CIA-led Iraq inspection team. At one point, former U.N. arms inspector Rod Barton says a CIA officer told him it was, quote, politically not possible, unquote, to report that the White House claims were untrue. In the end, Barton says he felt complicit in deceit, which is, of course, the most painful place to be complicit. Barton, an Australian biological weapons specialist, has a new book coming out in Australia. Go there to find things out. Much sought after for his expertise, Barton served on the U.S. U.N. arms Iraq inspection teams of 1991-98 and 2002-2003. President Bush asserted that the uh, those two trailers were bioweapons labs after uh, a U.S. fact-finding mission confidentially advised Washington on May 27, 2003, that they were not. And other administration officials repeated that story for months afterwards. Barton's memoir says well into 2004, pressure from Washington kept the U.S. public uninformed about the true nature of these vehicles. Other former CIA officials denied such information was stifled. I guess they still want to work there. And a senior CIA official meeting with Senate staff in a secure room of the Capitol last June promised repeatedly that the agency did not violate or seek to violate an international treaty that bars cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment of detainees. But another CIA officer, the agency's deputy inspector general, who for the previous year had been probing allegations of criminal mistreatment by the CIA and its contractors in Iraq and Afghanistan, was startled to hear what she considered an outright falsehood, according to people familiar with her account. She was Mary McCarthy, who was recently fired for allegedly leaking a leak which she denied. talking about lies and your your allegation that there was bulletproof evidence of ties between al-Qaeda and Iraq. Was that a lie Zar- or were you misled? Zarqawi was in Baghdad during the pre-war period. That is a fact. Zarqawi? He was in the north of Iraq in a place where Saddam Hussein had no rule. He That's was where also, he was. He was also in Baghdad. Yeah, when he needed to go to the hospital. Come on, these people aren't idiots. They yes. know the story. You are, let, let, me, let me give you an example. It's easy for you to make a charge, um, but why do you think that the men and women in uniform, every day when they came out of Kuwait and went into Iraq, put on chemical weapon protective suits? Because they like the, uh, the style? They honestly believed that there were chemical weapons. Saddam Hussein had used chemical weapons on his own people previously. He'd used them on his neighbor, the Iranians, and they believed he had those weapons. We believed he had those weapons. That's what we call a non sequitur. It doesn't matter what the troops believe. It matters what you believe. 
the troops believed what they were told. That was Ray McGovern, retired CIA analyst, set 27 years on the agency. He was the guy who used to give the daily presidential briefings to W's dad, co-founder of VIPs, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. He confronted Donald Rumsfeld, Defense Secretary at Southern Center for International Studies in Atlanta, May 4th. And on behalf of the entire Air America Radio listening audience, Ray McGovern, I want to thank you. This is the vast round of applause um, represented just by my two hands. Thank you for doing what journalists haven't, what um, politicians haven't. It sounded like it was years in coming, was it, Ray? Well, it was, uh, Laura, and the irony, of course, is that I couldn't get anywhere near Donald Rumsfeld were I to have been in Washington or, or, or this area here around the, the Capitol. I happened to be in, uh, in Atlanta um, to receive a, an award from the ACLU, uh, the National Civil Liberties Award, and so I was on a high to begin with, and then when I heard that uh, Donald Rumsfeld was coming, I quickly thought, well, isn't that nice? He's coming to uh, to honor me, but then I quickly dismissed that and uh, got a ticket to uh, to this very unusual group here. Uh, of uh, well, it was a very interesting audience, as you could tell from the from the applause there when Don Rumsfeld Rumsfeld said, "I, I didn't lie." Uh, immediate applause. It reminded me very much of uh, being in the Soviet Union during my career and watching. Uh, Watching uh, immediate applause uh, uh, at, at all appropriate junctures for whoever happened to be in power. Yeah, it's pretty so scary. Something, something scary about most of the audience, but there were other protesters there as well from, uh, among other groups, the World Can't Wait Coalition, right? Yes, uh, some young folks who are, uh, you know, this is quite a quite an imaginative group. Uh, the world can't wait to get rid of the Bush administration. Um, and I, uh, I was really inspired by uh, particularly one of the women who said, uh, you know, talked about lies, uh, Rumsfeld's lies, and and that really gave me the incentive to 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 stand up because I don't know if you remember this, but what Rumsfeld did was sort of wring his hands, you know, and say, oh, that is so destructive of the trust that government needs to govern to you know to say that the president lied well the lady didn't say the president lied she said Rumsfeld lied and then you know my my colleague Paul Pillar who is the highest uh, Middle East expert in the government when he retired and who was right in there during the uh, prelude to the Iraqi war had just given an interview to El País the Spanish newspaper in which he said that there was a a very well orchestrated program of manipulation of data, and specifically with respect to these so-called ties between Saddam Hussein and 9/11, and that was the most pernicious thing because the agency spent a year and a half poring over every scrap of evidence and came up negative and said very determinedly, "Look, there are any ties worth speaking of between Iraq and Al Qaeda, so don't say that." Well, Rumsfeld uh, decided that he would say there was bulletproof evidence of that, and of course the 9/11 Commission and others have since uh, declared that there were no, no operational ties of any significance between the two. Why were they saying that? Well, they were saying that to, to cynically play on the trauma of the American people after 9/11. 
and to try to associate Saddam Hussein with 9-11, and it worked, because 69% of the people believed at the time of the war, 69% of Americans believed that Saddam Hussein had something to do with 9-11. And, this and today, they still believe, people still believe, and we still be kept being, we keep being told that there was a problem with the intelligence. It wasn't the intelligence, it was the ignoring and denying and skewing the intelligence. I'm not in the intelligence business. <laughs> you can say that again. That was Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. He was confronted this week in Atlanta by Ray McGovern, retired CIA analyst, who took objection to how Rumsfeld was handling protesters and what Rumsfeld was spinning in the way of yet more lies to the American people. Two questions for you, Ray, before we go to a caller with one. Um, what is most important now in this intelligence area? most important thing, uh, Laura, and this is what we veteran intelligence professionals for sanity are doing, is to expose the lies upon which this uh, war in Iraq was based. Uh, why is that important? Uh, because the same kinds of lies are being adduced now to justify an air attack and cruise missile attack on Iran. This is crazy. Everyone rec recognizes that to his sane of mind. But we're dealing with the crazies here, and with the president's poll numbers where they are, uh, there will be a real felt need to make him a war president once again. And he is, of course, also uh, buffeted by all kinds of pressure from the Israelis, the right-wing government there, that does not want to have any danger uh, to its nuclear, nuclear uh, monopoly there in, um, in the Middle East. So mm -hmm. that's the situation with respect to Iran. I wish there were a happier picture, but I warn everyone that if we don't get off our rear ends and make sure that the government knows that we will not tolerate a much wider war, then it's going to happen. They are floating the name of Air Force General Michael J. Hayden to replace Porter Goss at CIA, not as Director of Central Intelligence, but just as the Director of the CIA, which is what that job now is. Um, what's your thought? My thought is this, that uh, General Michael Hayden should have been court-martialed as soon as it became clear that he obeyed an illegal order to monitor the conversations of Americans. The law is clear. It's called FISA, 1978, so much so that Hayden himself, when he was head of NSA, insisted that there was an 11th commandment for NSA workers, and it was, thou shalt not monitor the conversations of Americans. But when the president and the vice president came to him and said, well, after 9-11, everything's changed. It's a new paradigm. Will you please wamp up a wonderful program where we can uh, monitor whoever we want? And instead of saying, sir, uh, that would be an illegal order. I cannot obey that order. Uh, he uh, launched what is a uh, incredibly wide program. It must be wide because had it been modest, it could easily have been approved by Congress, which is the, the right way to go. So warrantless, warrantless eavesdropping on Americans is a crime. Uh, there's a, a law against it, and he should have been court-martialed, and uh, he does not deserve to be put in charge of a very sensitive agency when his record shows he'll do whatever the president tells him to do. There will be confirmation hearings on his nomination. What would you have the defenders of the Constitution or those who claim to be such, what would you have them do? I would have them ask him in detail uh, why he why he violated the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, 
and to explain uh, how he felt that he could obey that order when his whole career was built on that 11th commandment, thou shalt not monitor Americans. That's the mm-hmm. first question I'd ask him, and that I'd ask him lots of, lots of others as well, why he felt that he could defend this decision and withhold information from, uh, from the committees. Uh, he was going to meet with the committees as soon as they heard about this, and then he was canceled out because the White House said, no, don't meet with the committees yet. So he is, he is a cog in the machine of the White House. And, to have and occasionally, that, as we know, that time is, the time comes to throw your body on the cogs of that machine. I'm hearing an endorsement of standing on the Senate floor and calling these questions for as long as it might take. Yes, and, uh, you know, what's happened, of course, is with a one-party government, that is with the legislature uh, controlled by the president's party, uh, the chairman of the various committees have no appetite for, ch- for challenging folks like Hayden. Now, That's Ray McGovern. we got to go. You're listening to Radio Nation. It's been a pleasure to have you. Drink a baby down My things behind cause it's all going off without you excuse me too busy writing your tragedy these missiles you bubble wrap when you know I do watch your life Michael Payne is on the line with us he's a freelance journalist and veteran of the US Air Force uh, he, uh, Michael, you wanted us to announce your email address. If you would, I would be pl- I would be pleased to. I just you know heads up. <laughs> it's M Payne M P A Y N E at takeastandministries dot org, and uh, Michael Payne, uh, you you were uh, it was suggested to us by by uh, one of the conservative uh, guest booking agencies that's contacting radio shows all around the country uh, that uh, apparently you're doing a circuit of sorts and and you should be on our program and and uh, your position it seems if my understanding is correct is that if the media in the United States continues talking about uh, casualties and things going wrong in Iraq that uh, we're going to go down the same road we went down in Vietnam is that an accurate description well uh, obviously there's no guarantee that that would happen but it certainly uh, does not um lend to victory there and as in vietnam um, there were many victories battle-wise won by the u.s troops but back home the um, media was continuously looking for criticisms of progress being made and continuously saying we're losing the war there and that's the same uh, that's one reason i went to uh, iraq to embed was I was in the military during Vietnam. I did not go to Vietnam, but remembrance of um, the, the negative uh, criticisms on a constant basis. And, and also what uh, affects me deeply is as I see these negative criticisms and as I was in Iraq and uh, witnessed uh, live on CNN cable as we sat in a child things that were being said, it was always negative. And many times it was not even the truth in that um, they were, the incidents would be colored as uh, we were losing ground instead of gaining ground. And many things are happening there that are positive. And as these things play back here, uh, you're, um, 
the media in the Arab world that would um, color and not want us in Iraq and be against what we were doing there, such as the uh, group Al Jazeera, which is anti-American effort in Iraq and anti um, us being in Iraq. So anything I've, I've witnessed them pick up on stories that I knew, that looking at them. Uh, they reflect poorly on us. Michael, in, during World War II, there was a fair amount of reporting about, you know, battles that weren't going well, casualty reportings. Americans hung on casualty numbers. There was a very widely publicized spat between Dwight Eisenhower and Douglas MacArthur, uh, led to MacArthur resigning. This was all played out in the newspapers. All the, all the, uh, you know, uh, spit and vinegar or whatever. I mean, it was, it was all there. Uh, are you suggesting that during World War II we shouldn't have been reporting that also? Isn't it, wouldn't it be more accurate to say that, that Vietnam was a stupid war for us to be in? It was a bad policy based on a lie told by a Democratic president, Lyndon Johnson, and Iraq is a stupid war for us to be in based on a lie told by a Republican president, George W. Bush, and that the failure of both of these wars is that they're both based on lies, whereas World War II wasn't? Well, um, the truth is uh, I'm not here to – I have an opinion about uh, we're doing good things in Iraq, and I have the opinion that Saddam Hussein was a wicked and cruel dictator who was dipping his own country people into acid while they were still alive and putting them through meat grinders while they were alive to spread terror through the nation and subject the people. What would you think about a country that kills over a 1,000 of its citizens a year simply so that they can make a profit selling their body parts? Uh, would you I, want to take out the leadership of that country? Well, I certainly think that it has to be addressed in some manner. Okay, I'm talking about China. I'm talking about the country that George Bush was kissing the butt of last week. Well, uh, let me say this to you, sir. I'm not a lockstep Bush man. And I'm not a lockstep Republican, though I voted Republican. And there are things there. And when I call Congress, I don't call Democratic leaders and complain to them. I call John Warner of Virginia, who is, which is where I live, and I criticize his uh, spineless stands on several issues that I disagree with his policy on. So, you know. Well, I guess my, my larger question here, Michael Payne, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to antagonize you, but I, I really do want to get to the core of this okay, thing. Because we'll the position that, that you're taking that, you know, we shouldn't be reporting on the bad news out of Iraq is a position that I remember very well from during the Vietnam War. No, you did not and, hear me say that. No, not from you. But I, but I heard, you know, people criticizing the media during the Vietnam War and, you know, talking to my father, who, who was in, in the occupation forces in Japan immediately after World War II, signed up for the military during World War II. Okay. Let's, um, you know, let's, the let's same go, thing was being said to, during World War II. Let us go to Abu Ghraib, okay? Well, no, I, I, there's, a large, there's a larger question here. And that, and, well, here, here's my answer to you. Those people who perpetrated Abu Ghraib and abused those prisoners, as far as I'm concerned, were um, hugely detrimental to the, Amer to the U.S. military, their honor and their integrity, even though it was limited to a very small faction of them. So you're and, suggesting and, that when Lindy Inla England and, and got those, on a plane those, in and Florida those, to fly over to Iraq, she had a dog collar with her in her back pocket because she thought, someday I'm going to need this thing? Well, you know, here even in the U.S., you've got police officers, you've got... I'm not talking about here in the U.S. I'm talking about Lynn Eng Lenny, Lindy England in, in Iraq. Do you think that she took my... a dog collar over there? Here's my point. Here's my point. Uh, you give some fools a little bit of power, it makes a bigger fool out of them. And I'm not... So why did Rumsfeld give them that power? 
I don't believe that Rumsfeld uh, was uh, informed of every uh, detail of what went on, and I don't believe that Rumsfeld is is the uh, type of man who would have said put dog collars on them. And because then why did George Bush, when Congress passed a law banning torture, why did he attach a signing statement to it saying essentially, I reserve the right to ignore this law? Uh, I'm sorry, say it one more time. Why is it that when Congress passed a law banning torture, specifically to stop the kind of thing that happened at Abu Ghraib, that George W. Bush attached a signing statement to it that said, in essence, I don't have to follow this law, and in fact violated that law? Well, I don't know all the details of that. And here's, here's, my, here's, where, here's what I'm speaking to you, and this is what I'm on the program to talk about, is the simple fact that as... And I never said that negative things should not be, uh, truth should not be reported about what's going on in Iraq. All I'm saying is that the constant focus upon a uh, number of troops of ours killed and a um, leaning to what happens is it encourages the enemy to stand firm and to continue, and they have the attitude if we can kill enough of them, they'll tuck tail and go home. Now, we, well, maybe our, if they our, do, now, we should. Hold on a second. I mean, why should we stay someplace we're not wanted? We're trying. We're well. Let me tell you this: I was there three different times, walking through Iraq with the troops, among the troops, um, and the people there. I would say 70 to 75 percent appreciated us being there. Now, the ones that are put on the air and the disgruntled soldiers that are put on the air, you don't see people being put on the air that say, uh, as a rule, um, we much appreciate what you're doing over Michael, here. Michael, just give me a straight answer to this. If, if, you, if you were, no, no, to, to the question I'm about to ask, if you and I were standing on the street in, in, in New York City, let's say, and we had been occupied by, let's say, Canada, and the, there were Canadian soldiers marching down the street and they, in full battle gear carrying M16s, and we knew that they could kill us and never be held accountable for it or rarely be held accountable for it, and it was not going to be in public sight. Do you think that we would be saying anything other than, hi, nice to see you? Uh, absolutely not, but those people over there also uh, knew and know of the terror that was being um, brought upon them by Saddam and the wickedness and the injustice that was going on. There's no. I would not tell you that there's never any uh, mistakes made by our troops or some one or a few of them, and I do mean to say a few, not as policy, have gotten out of hand, and uh, there have been convictions in U.S. Uh, military courts, court-martials of troops who have uh, gone overboard in whatever manner. Maybe it was anger. Maybe it was some kind of stupid revenge. I don't know. But they've many of these, uh, several of these, or that I know of, have been convicted of what they did and will face punishment for those things. But the majority of the people in Iraq appreciate us being there, and they know we're there to help them, not to continuously occupy them. And I believe that it is uh, the desire of George Bush and Donald Rumsfeld and the military to finish the job and come home. And okay. I know that many soldiers say that I interviewed there, we have a job to finish and we need to stay and do it. Michael Payne, M-P-A-Y-N-E, at TakeAStandMinistries.org. Michael, thank you for being with us, and good luck on your uh, radio tour with all the other talk shows out there. Thank you, sir. And she says, 
this would have been a nice story to know about. A few years back, the news peg now is that uh, nobody visits her grave. This is from Reuters. Gertrude Bell, a British traveler, writer, and linguist, was one of the most powerful women of the 1920s, an advisor to empire builders and confidant to kings, an oriental secretary to British governments. She, she is credited with drawing the boundaries of modern Iraq out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I. I told you on this program years ago that all of our modern trouble spots are the result of Brits drawing lines on a map at the end of World War I. This is just one of them. The woman dubbed the Queen of Iraq lies now in a forgotten cemetery in Baghdad. Modern Iraq has been a divided nation since its creation. Bell and her fellow colonialists settled Iraq's borders by merging the old Ottoman provinces of Mosul, Baghdad, and Basra, seeking to secure British interests, thoughtful, and with scant regard for tribal and ethnic boundaries. Quote, I had a well-spent morning at the office making out the southern desert frontier of the Iraq, Bell wrote to her father in 1921. She specialized in Arabic and Persian languages. It's nice of her. What emerged was a centralized state with three peoples with differing aims, ideals, and beliefs. Non-Arab Kurds in the mountainous north, Shiite Muslims in the south, and Sunni Arabs in Baghdad and the rest of the heartland. In 1958, a group of nationalist military officers ousted the puppet monarchy Bell had helped installed in a bogus referendum in 1921 that passed with 96% of the vote. She had also helped draw up many of the policies that were later taken up by Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath Party and which exacerbated the centuries-old tensions between Shiites and Sunnis. Can I say Shiite on the air? She ensured that a Sunni elite, previously favored by the Sunni Turks running the Ottoman Empire, dominated the new Iraqi government and the army, and that the majority Shiites, whom she regarded as religious zealots, remained oppressed. Kurds were denied self-rule so that London could control Kurdistan's oil fields and build a buffer against the Russians. Are we living in 1921, or what happened? Quote, I don't for a moment doubt that the final authority must be in the hands of the Sunnis, in spite of their numerical inferiority, otherwise you will have a theocratic state, which is the very devil, Bell wrote in a letter. When asked by a reporter recently why Iraqi politicians argued so much over a new government, by the way, I don't have one yet, that purple ink is... I believe, faded in the sun. Uh, current Iraqi President Jalal Talabani said, this is the Iraq our British friends created. Bell had an aristocratic upbringing. Well, that's a surprise. Sounds, sounds like she would have had dirt under her fingernails, but no. She lived in a more genteel Baghdad than today's city of sandbags, armored vehicles, and bombed-out hulks of Saddam-era government buildings. She wore long muslin dresses and feathered hats, and rode side saddle along the banks of the Tigris. In her letter, she describes a Baghdad of tea parties, regattas, swimming excursions, and luncheon on the verandas of colonial buildings. But revolt spread, and Britain used bombs and poison gas against those opposed to its presence. Did you know that? Britain used, this is from Reuters, Britain used poison gas against those who rebelled against its colonial presence in Iraq, you see.
ladies and gentlemen. She faded from public life. She said, quote, We have underestimated the fact that this country is really an inchoate mass of tribes which can't as yet be reduced to any system. Unquote. Would have been a good quote to have had on the wires, oh, let's say three and a half years ago. But, you know, then it wasn't important that nobody came to visit her grave. That's the news peg of the story, ladies and gentlemen. Five years before her death from an overdose of sleeping pills. Are we living in 19... What hell... What, what, did we, what did we walk through here? She wrote, quote, You may rely upon one thing. I'll never engage in creating kings again. It's too great a strain. Yes, indeedly doodly. Gertrude Bell, ladies and gentlemen. Should have known. We should have known about her. Iraqi Prime Minister this week uh, has twice expressed confidence that Iraqi forces would be ready and able to fight for themselves come 2007. He says that U.S. and British troops could be out of all but two Iraqi provinces by the end of this year. Joining us to discuss these developments and other matters is Senate Armed Services Committee member and the Democratic Senator from Rhode Island, Jack Reed. Senator Reed, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, good morning, Rachel. I understand that there was a uh, closed-door briefing yesterday in the Senate Armed Services Committee um, about the Haditha incident last November in Iraq, in which some Marines are accused of um, having uh, killed civilians. I wondered if you had any comment on that on that investigation or any expectations for when we might find out about the results of that investigation. Well, the investigation is ongoing. Uh, public press reports indicate that this is a very serious incident involving not only the uh, behavior of individual Marines, but the response of their chain of command to these incidents. And the concern is, and, and this has not yet been established, is whether or not this is an isolated situation or whether uh, there are, there might be other situations. And uh, this in- investigation goes forward. And uh, Certainly, my message is that they have to be very, very aggressive in terms of investigating this because not only this type of behavior is contrary to our principles of uh, military operations, but it just uh, makes our job in Iraq much more and more difficult. I was interested to see that today that the the commandant of the Marine Corps, that the top Marine in the country is now going to fly to Iraq to talk to Marines about uh, expected standards of behavior and and value for human life and all of these other uh, very basic things. Do you feel like um, the military from within the military, you yourself as a former Army paratrooper, that that the, the leadership has to come from President Bush, the leadership should come from within the military on these issues? Obviously, there's been a number of incidents from Abu Ghraib on down that have really raised some concerns among the American people about the behavior and command structures of, of our troops over there. 
this is a constant issue that you can't assume just because there's been classes and instructions and orders issued about humane treatment that it is going to automatically take place. These young Marines and soldiers and sailors and airmen on the ground are in very stressful situations. There's no excuse for this type of behavior. Uh, but there is, I think, because of the stress, because of the strain, because of the, you know, the constant sort of pressure that they're under, the necessity to continually remind the troops of this. And it's two issues here. One is a, is a fundamental issue of the, the, the way professional Marines and soldiers have to perform and to be true to their training and to the principles of this country. Mm. And the second is a very practical one. Uh, you know, our major goal there is to convince the Iraqi people that, uh, uh, their best path is with uh, their government supported by the United States. And when we do these things, we give the insurgents a huge propaganda uh, coup so that they can talk about us not as helping Iraqi people, but as actually harming the Iraqi people. Mm-hmm. You know, Senator Reid, we uh, on this show and, and Air America generally, we try to talk to a lot of um, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, try to keep their concerns in the mix of the debate about the war and, and what should happen. And in listening to uh, President Bush and Prime Minister Blair last night talking about the, when we might be able to draw down troops and what the expectations are for the new Iraqi government and all of these things, I just kept coming back to conversations that I've had with veterans about how hard it is to explain what our mission is. And as you explained it right there, you said we're trying to convince the Iraqi people to kind of take our side and take the stable government side of what they're going to do. It seems like a very hard mission for U.S. troops to accomplish. I feel like as somebody who covers the war every day, I no longer know what a member of the infantry for the U.S. Army right now is actually trying to accomplish every day in Iraq other than just stay alive. Well, certainly there's an obvious danger there, and then they respond to that. They have to be able to protect themselves and protect their their comrades. But I think you've really identified one of the critical issues. This it does not have the clarity of a conventional battle where right. you're, you're battling an army, you're, you're doing it at three or four thousand meters away, you're you're calling in uh, airstrikes on clearly military targets. What what this is is a battle for proverbial hearts and minds to 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 be able to provide a environment so that the Iraq excuse me the Iraqi security forces can emerge and also at the same time trying to convince uh, individual Iraqis and Iraqi communities that uh, the future is is with their new government and uh, not with these insurgents. Now, <clears throat> complicating all of this, I think, is the fact that soldiers are being asked to do much more than. Than, than soldiers should be asked. We don't have on the ground the kind of civilian complement, the State Department officials, the AID officials, the advisors from the Department of Justice and the Department of Agriculture, and that's forcing a lot of soldiers to become uh, not just soldiers and Marines, but in a way, you know, mayors of towns, social workers, agricultural advisors. Right. Uh, they're trying to do this uh, simply because they're the, they're the only forces we have. But one of the major criticisms of the administration uh, is that they've never been able to summon the kind of complementary uh, civilian power, if you will, to complement military efforts and take a load off our soldiers to let them, you know, be security but have other people there going and engaging the Iraqi people. And uh, we just we haven't done that. I'm pessimistic about whether we'll be able to do that. And that's one of the reasons why the, the president and the prime minister last evening was so somber about uh, the future. 
uh, it, it takes, in a way, a one-two punch to, to be effective in waging counterinsurgency. Military security, uh, together with economic development and political maturation, and the, the second stage, economic development and political mentoring, is, is not being jump-started by the, by the United States. No, and it's not best done by 21-year-olds with rifles. They're, they've got the, they've, they're trained for a very specific job, and it's not political mentoring and all those other things that you described. Do, Senator Reid, do you feel like... That kind of a strategy about bolstering the military force with State Department folks, with AID folks, with more uh, a more civilian complement. Do you feel like we're at, we actually have the capacity as a government right now to do that? Is it just a matter of priorities within the Bush administration that they've decided not to go that way, but they could if they wanted to? I think it's, it is a capacity problem, Rachel, uh, mm-hmm. as well as a problem of vision in terms of recognizing earlier on this is what we had to do. I mean, one of the the huge, huge gaps in our planning uh, before the invasion of Iraq was the just total, totally ignoring the notion of a major investment uh, after the battle is over in terms of economic development. You know, they they paid lip service to it, and now we're paying dearly for it. And it is a capacity problem. Uh, the, the 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 State Department is not organized, nor is the other federal uh, civilian agencies organized for the kind of expeditionary activities, sending people away for a year or six months. Uh, their culture, and as well as their personnel, uh, are constraints on this type of operation. And what's frustrating is it's now we've been engaged for three years, and they still haven't been able to make the adjustments there. And that's one of the, the major fault lines in terms of our strategy. And it, it's, it's so far prevented us from making a transition more successfully away from a principal military effort to a civilian effort. I, I will say, just politically speaking, to hear you articulate that kind of strategy and talk about the fact that we don't have the capacity to do what sounds like a very smart thing. People always say, oh, you know, the Republicans may not know what to do about Iraq, but the Democrats don't have any ideas at all. That seems like a very cogent new idea that uh, that it's uh, I, I wish was out there more. And I, I'm, I'm happy to hear you articulate it here. And uh, and, and I hope that the, the idea that there is a Democratic strategy or, or that some Democrats do have smart ideas about Iraq that are different than what we're doing right now. I wish that was out there more. I wish that was part of the more of the common wisdom. Duncan Hunter. This is from the 21st. I've been seeing little bits and pieces about this uh, Marines killing civilians uh, in other papers from earlier, but this is the first time I've seen it as more than just a one or two column inch thing. Yeah, forthcoming military investigations into alleged war crimes in Iraq will show that a squad of U.S. Marines killed about 24 Iraqi civilians, including women and children, while on a patrol in Haditha in November a higher number than first believed, and then gave inaccurate reports on the incident to their commanders at Congressional Republicans said Friday. House Senate Armed Services Committee Chairman Duncan Hunter, Republican from California, said his panel will hold oversight hearings on the two investigations to ensure they are undertaken by the military with integrity. That's good that he's doing that. It's really good if he follows through with a full investigation. 
Representative John Murtha, Democrat from Pennsylvania, said the incident, quote, was much worse and had involved no firefight or roadside bomb that killed civilians. Quote, our troops overreacted because of the pressure on them and they killed innocent civilians in cold blood, said Murtha, who seeks a rapid withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq. Now, first of all, I want people to understand that from everything I have seen and heard and read and looked into, investigated, touched, felt, smelled, all that, anyway, in every way possible that I could learn about it, or learn about anything that happens around here, this is an isolated incident. It is sad, it is shameful, it is disgusting. But fortunately, it is isolated. And unfortunately, it has the potential to not be isolated incidents. There is a lot of bad vibes, so to speak, brewing over here among the troops. And I worry about what kind of shitstorm could boil over here in these kind of conditions. And I want to say to all of the other Marines out there, I know that it was just a case of wrong guys in the wrong place going through the wrong shit. But to those guys, those Marines who were involved in it, I want to ask you if you know the words to your own damn services hymn. What the hell were you doing killing civilians? The fuck is wrong with you? It is bullshit. They are non-combatants. It's... You're disgusting. You're fucking sickening me. You know, what, the, what are the words to your fucking hymn? Huh? First to fight for right and freedom and to keep our honor clean. It, you didn't even think... You didn't... Oh, God damn it. You know, words fucking fail me in something like this. It's just bullshit. It's one more thing that builds enemies to our cause. Whatever fucking cause that is over here, I should say. It, it builds enemies. It recruits for insurgencies. It recruits for the guerrillas. It recruits for the terrorists. It recruits for the jihad tourists that come here to get their training against us because now we're their opposition force to train against in their training center. Anybody who's ever been to National Training Center, NTC, in Fort Irwin, California for Desert Warfare knows about the Op 4, the guys that are players as the opposition force. You go there, you test your skills against them, you learn how to fight better. Well, basically, we have turned this place into NTC for terrorists. They come here, they train against us, and they leave. They go back to their home countries, and now what civil police force is going to be able to stand against them, including in our own country, when they have trained against the United States Army, the United States Marine Corps, when they have trained to conduct operations against us using the simplest devised weapons they can, using just ingenuity and improvisation, and they manage to pretty much hold their own on a strategic level, not necessarily tactically and in individual engagements. They're not really holding their own. But this is this bullshit killing civilians. My God, what the... You know, this war is quickly becoming like another unpopular war in all the wrong fucking ways. And we don't need that. We already have enough fucking people hating us because of the stupidity that has been perpetrated at the highest levels in executing this operation. The lack of forethought 
the lack of planning, the lack of consideration for the ideas of other nations, the lack of consideration for the legality of such an operation under international and U.S. law. And it's just, oh God, I don't want to get started on that. But basically, these types of actions eventually directly harm your fellow service members, your fellow Americans. Because what happens? These civilians, you kill civilians. Now their families are pissed because you killed their family. And rightly so. And you deserve whatever the fuck they can do to you. You really do. Regardless of what uniform you wear, if you kill civilians, you are a fucking scumbag. That's all I have to say about, about, about you. But your actions have consequences. You've just created people that, you know, if you've killed someone's family and they feel they have nothing to live for and they want to come after us, they're more likely to fight to the death. Not that they're not likely to fight to the death already because of fucking stupid motherfuckers in Abu Ghraib and Bagram and Gitmo torturing prisoners. Because of them, now these guys know I can't surrender. I have to fight to the death or I'll be tortured and humiliated. My religion mocked and myself violated. So now they have no incentive whatsoever to surrender. They have every incentive in the world to fight to the death. Well, now you take a guy that already knows that, that already sees what was happening and may still go on just a little bit quieter but still playing their little games. And he sees all of that and he thinks, man, I can't surrender. I can't surrender or they'll fucking torture me. You know, they'll rape me. They'll do whatever. They'll violate me. Now, this guy has no family. He's got nothing to live for. Well, now you've just made another potential martyr for the cause. Now you've just made another guy who's willing to strap a bomb on himself and walk into a fucking crowded place. You've made another guy who's willing to drive a freaking junk-ass white hatchback with orange quarter panels and a missing headlight, and he's willing to drive that right up to your checkpoint and detonate on you. All because some dumb motherfuckers forgot who the fuck they were. Forgot they were Americans. Forgot what that's supposed to mean. What that used to mean. People who have forgotten what their grandfathers fought for. In some cases, what their fathers fought for. My God. I'm going to let that one go at that. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks again to Godless Kinzer for letting me use that clip of his. Um, you can go and find his show at godlesskinzer.com, K-I-N-S-E-R. And um, remember, you can find links to all of the shows that I use uh, to to build my show at my website, bestoftheleftpodcast.com. It's right on the homepage. You just scroll down a little bit and and there's the whole list there and uh, you know all of these shows have their own podcasts so if you like what you hear you can find them pretty easily and subscribe to their shows and i certainly encourage that as always contact me directly at hippie sympathizer at gmail.com and that's about it have a good one